Don't move. You're listening to Harpy Hour. We just want to share another awesome podcast with you first. So check these guys out and stay tuned for this week's episode of Harpy Hour. Music. Everyone loves it. But who listens to the lyrics? We do. She doesn't live in a shantytown. She lives in capital S shantytown. <laughs> yeah. You put patches from old shantytown on a resume, <laughs> you're not getting that job. You know what I mean? On the Story Song Podcast, we break down the lyrics you've heard a thousand times. Go so, to Barnes & Noble, 20 bucks, farming for dummies. Right. Chapter one, don't farm at night. Chapter two, don't farm in the winter. Yeah. <laughs> the index is just like blizzard. See also, don't. We also look at the history of the song. So the monster matches on the R&B <laughs> yes. Clearly it should be on the monster chart. Oh, it was, it was number one on the monster oh, chart. Oh, good, good, good. The Story Song Podcast. Find it wherever you download podcasts. Harpy Hour may contain explicit language as well as graphic, violent, and sexual content. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Harpy Hour! Hello! Welcome! We are the Harpies. I'm Tracy, and I can count to four. (laughs) We just had a really fantastic (laughs) audio um, experiment. It was uh, during our sound check. So with the first recording session we opened had a big lag in it, so we were testing the lag by counting, taking turns, (laughs) counting one to ten. (laughs) Tracy panicked at four. Completely forgot what number came after three. She went one, Liz went two, I said three. Tracy stuttered and was like, four. We were trying to figure out whose like microphone audio was on a delay, and instead of delaying, Tracy just like froze in the headlights and started stuttering numbers. I forgot what happened. What's next? (laughs) So, guys, I really can count to four. Well, I'm Liz, and I passed uh, elementary school and know my numbers. (laughs) Rude. I feel targeted. I'm Steph and I can also count. But counting isn't math. No. Mm-mm. No, it's not. <laughs> counting is counting. Counting is counting. <laughs> and this is our podcast where we share ridiculous stories in our lives and history, science, and entertainment. You're welcome. Our podcast where we count. <laughs> it's an hour of us counting t- numbers one by one. And I'm just panicking every time like, oh god oh god oh god it's my turn again um, oh, seven no <laughs> next time we do an audio check let's try the um, alphabet oh god well, that's gonna be even worse <laughs> there's so many more Backlands. options <laughs> i can't uh, okay i oh, got it pulling it together tracy what are yeah. you bestowing upon us this week oh you guys are in for a treat so mine is the history of sachet. Uh, there's a, some sass in there I can detect. Yep. Are, you, are you feeling it? You feeling Did the you, sass? I feel I like there was also some sort of like cross body snapping mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that I picked up on. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. We could hear it. It's absolutely it. Hey, Liz. Yeah? You going to talk about something? I am. Oh, damn it. Do you want to know what it is? I, I would love to. 
It's the Carnegie Con. Oh, Carnegie as in Pittsburgh Carnegie's? You'll find out. That's my guess. <laughs> and Steph, what are you harping on? I am harping on cockadoodle don't. <laughs> I have no idea what to expect, but I just like it. Did you guys ever watch that movie Rockadoodle growing up? No. no. I had two hamsters that were named after characters in Rockadoodle. And it was like my favorite movie. And they had the song and it went, I'm going to rock a doodle doodle to you, to you. Just like you rock a doodle doodle to me. Rock a doodle rock. I'm going to rock a doodle doodle, <laughs> doodle to you. What does rock a doodle mean? Well, it was, a, it was a rooster singing it. So I think it's just when a rooster rocks out. Rocks out. Oh, that makes sense. Uh, cock. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's my understanding of it. But yeah, I named my two hamsters after it. So, you know, I, I was a fan. hamster names. <laughs> Olivia Benson. Rock-a-doodle-doo. This is the second time that I have mentioned separate hamsters. <laughs> well, no, the rock-a-doodle hamsters, there are two of them, and they are Goldie and Chanticleer. Chanticleer was the name of the, the rooster. Chanticleer? Oh, okay. It's the name of the rooster that was rocking. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. I'm up to date now. Yeah. So there's also a song about tying your shoes in that one. Is that how you learned how to tie your shoes? No, but my dad would sing it to me on the way to preschool. Life is just like tying your shoes. How? Around the world. You get all wrapped up or something? They sing in the blues. I, I don't remember. I'll have to look it up. So my segment is the history of the sachet. And... As you may be anticipating, we're going to talk about drag queen history. Woo! Yes. The history of drag queens. Okay. Oh, isn't there like a documentary on this? Is that kind of what you're going into? No, there is there is one on there Netflix, are, but there that are was many. The one on Netflix, you know what? I'm yeah, there's about. a new there's a new one on Netflix, but that was not the inspiration. Actually, our friend Noel was the inspiration. Thanks, Noel. I'm just going to say, Tracy. You need to stop taking inspiration from a whole bunch of people that aren't our Patreon supporters. I can crowdsource. <laughs> it probably inspires them to keep listening and to donate. The term drag queen refers to an individual who uses drag clothing, that's in quotes, and makeup to imitate and often exaggerate female gender signifiers and gender roles for entertainment. Drag can be either gender, but drag queens is usually used to refer to men dressing as women. So that's what we're talking about, although we will uh, clarify some of the terms. Just as a blanket statement, um, I'm going to try to be as like conscious of my pronouns and mm -hmm. uh, gender you know, signifiers, but you know keep me accountable and if anyone has any comments like educational constructive comments please educate me i do not pretend that this is like my you know major or something we're doing our best to be pc here exactly i'm trying and i appreciate constructive feedback if something is completely wrong please help me Sexual identity is irrelevant in drag. You can be straight, gay, non-binary, anything. Like, it, that is not relevant. 
Let's talk a little bit about the word drag, the etymology of it. Up until 1660, male actors portrayed female characters on stage because theater was, quote, too dangerous for women, unquote. What was dangerous about it? I don't know. That there were men involved? Like, yeah. <laughs> the danger like, of the you men. could trip on a petty skirt or the, the spotlight will blind you. I don't fucking Which know. Which could all happen to the male actors. I agree. I would contend that men are they're less men. suited. They're, they're for, manly. They can handle it. Yeah. I would contend that they are less used to walking in heels yeah. and whatnot, but whatever. That's surprising. I would have thought there were like entirely more sexist reasons for why women were involved and not danger. It was considered too dangerous. Also, men tend to be bigger babies when they get injured than women do. 100%. Women just kind of like soldier on, sally forth. The number of times I have tended to my boyfriend's wounds this past like couple of weeks, he keeps getting injured. He's like, I'm injured again. I'm like, oh my God, you're fine. You scraped your elbow. <laughs> you are a doctor. You know exactly how fine you are. Like, <laughs> I don't understand. He, he walked outside to throw the trash out and he went barefoot and he stepped in a patch of like burrs, those little... Oh yeah, spiky things in the grass. I mean, I understand how that's annoying, but and it's he not like crawled threatening. back into the house, <laughs> and stuck his foot in the air, and shouts, "I'm injured again!" <laughs> and the- sounds like he's a little bit of a drama queen. Yeah, yeah. this sounds like a personality. Well, work. at this point, it was like a joke because he kept getting injured. He kept getting little scrapes, and like, kind of like jokingly perseverate on them. Like, oh my god, I, my coral folks. He scraped his foot on coral. He's like, oh my god, it, it's a hashtag Hawaii it injuries. Yeah. Right. Right. So then I spent the next like 15 minutes picking burrs out of the bottom of his foot while he's taking pictures of it. Get get it together, bro. So in 1870, the first recorded reference of drag in terms of actors dressed as in women's clothing happens in England. So apparently the term came from when men played female parts, their costumes would drag across the floor because they were not used to wearing them. So they wouldn't like... They would be like, oh, I'm just going to stomp around in my lady shoes. <laughs> clomp, 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 clomp. They didn't hem them. <laughs> yeah, apparently not. So that was where the term drag comes they from. They didn't know how to move their waist with a train on it. Apparently. Oh apparently. Men so they really are. So other terms for people who perform drag. There's uh, drag kings, which, as you may guess, is uh, women dressing in dramatically masculine clothes so it's the inverse there are a couple other terms uh one is faux queens or bio queens and that is a person who is performing as their biological gender in its exaggerated form so that would be if i was wearing quote drag queen makeup i would be a Mm. faux queen or a bio queen gotcha because it is my biological gender Okay, so you're just playing up your current, your correct biological gender. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You have like really body enhancing makeup to accentuate like your already huge booties and stuff. Right, like I might stuff my bra, I Theater might theater makeup, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, that kind of thing. Exactly. There's trans king and queens. That's transgendered people who don't identify with the gender they were assigned at birth. That would be. Again, using myself as an example, that would be me. I do not identify as a woman, which is what I was. I was born female. So it would be me transitioning to being a man and dressing as a man. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. 
the term female impersonator, which is kind of not okay to say anymore. It's not as bad as like tranny, obviously, but female impersonator is just kind of not accurate. And I have a RuPaul quote expressing why it's not accurate. So RuPaul says, I do not impersonate females. How many women do you know who wear seven inch heels, four foot wigs and skin tight dresses? <laughs> accurate. Accurate. Um, I feel like there's some people in Jersey who do that. Okay. Well, <laughs> not your not. average Jerseyans. I'm thinking like Jersey Shore. Schnooky. Mm, but they're not usually in wigs. Like maybe a weave. Yeah, probably not a wig. Yeah. Yeah. But the tall hair and the tight tall dress. Tall hair and the tall heels. Dress. Sure. That's Jersey Shore. All right. Well, <laughs> don't argue with RuPaul. Other vocabulary that you need to know if you're like in this circle. Passing, which is someone who is perceived to be the gender they wish to present as. So like if you look at a transgendered person, like male to female, and you were like, oh, I never would have, you know, that person is passing. Oh. I never would have known that that person was trans. Right. Okay. And then drag names, mother and drag mothers and daughters. So you receive your name from your drag mother and you have like a drag family tree. I had no idea Which is about that. similar to like Greek life, like when you have bigs and littles. So oh, you okay. have, so you have like a grand drag. So you have a drag grandmother, like et cetera, et cetera, going all the way back. So you like bequeath a name onto your drag daughter. So just for funsies, I went to the drag name generator and I generated <laughs> some names for the three of us. Oh, I'm so excited. So, so mine is Frida cut a bitch. Nice. <laughs> I do not see Tracy cutting any bitches. I mean, I see me threatening to cut a bitch. I just don't see me really following Executing. through on said cutting of bitches. So, Liz, yours is Miss Felicia Goodnight. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. There's some like by Felicia aspect in there. Yeah, I like having a title. I like the goodnight part. Yeah, I, I didn't get a title. I'm very upset. <laughs> Steph, yours is my personal favorite. It yes. is Dame Mimi Kanye. <laughs> That's a little confusing. Because I, like, I, I, Mimi, I think of your grandmother. Your Mimi. I, okay, well, I think that's a very specific association that you're making. And then also, I thought you said Conway at first. No, Kanye. So I thought she was Kanye West. Yeah, but I, I heard Conway at first, and I thought no. that this was entirely like customized to being like a <laughs> Lucas Conway, uh, like Tracy family drag. <laughs> yep. If people in my family were doing drag, this is what their name would be. And I gave it to Steph. <laughs> um, what went into the generator? Just our real names? The generator, what I will send you guys the link, but it's based on, it's one of those like your birth month is the title, your first initial is your first name, and then the first initial of your last name. Mm -hmm. So that's how I figured we were all diverse enough that it yeah, not came much, up with no it. Overlap. Like there were no repeats. Yeah. So I like it. 
So those are your drag names, which I will now refer to you as throughout this segment. Dame Mimi Kanye. Yep. <laughs> Miss Felicia, good night. Felicia, Frida, <laughs> and Mimi. <laughs> Excellent. I feel like next time we start Harpy Hour, it should be like, where are the Harpies? I'm Felicia. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm Mimi. <laughs> exactly. Maybe that's how we say goodbye this episode. Just... Again, I'm Frida. I'm Felicia. I'm Mimi. We don't say our names when we say goodbye. I think we should. <laughs> Just this time. Before I get into the history, I'm going to say that this segment is going to address the development of modern drag queens in just the U.S. Because Europe and other nations, they have like entirely different timelines, entirely different origins. And we just don't have time to do that justice in one single segment. So sorry, rest of the world. We're uh, making America drag queen again. <laughs> As America always does. We started... With racism! Oh. oh. Yep. God damn it, America. Yeah. So in the early 1800s, drag queen culture had its roots in the black minstrel shows. So predominantly white men would dress as black women, complete with super racist blackface, oh. and mock black women's femininity because white people are terrible. Mm-hmm. Yep, we thought that was entertaining. Awesome. So, 1880s, drag balls in the USA. This I knew nothing about. Quick tangent, I went to NYU and most of my, like, I had essentially a minor in, like, sexuality studies and, like, uh, gender, gender studies. Gender studies. Yeah, gender and sexuality. So, I feel like I knew a lot of these things going in. I knew nothing about this and I am embarrassed that I knew nothing about this. William Dorsey Swan, a.k.a. the Queen of Drag. The OG. She, yeah. So remember that this is the 1880s. Like, think just after the Civil War. Okay. So this guy was born into slavery in Maryland and was freed by the Emancipation Proclamation when he was like roughly five years old. So he's like... He's little when he becomes a free person. He organizes a series of balls in Washington, D.C., like dancing balls, not like testicles. <laughs> I don't know how you host a series of testicles. I mean, for dinner? I don't know. Oh, I was going to say an orgy. <laughs> <laughs> so he has these balls for former slave men who wanted to wear their newly acquired silk and satin dresses. So he's like, you're a slave dude who has never had fine things before and now you're buying you know these awesome gowns let's have a prom like that's essentially what happened well why were they buying gowns in the first place like if they didn't if they weren't being invited they were like oh i'm free i can just because they can yeah they were like i'm a free person i'm able to do this oh shit i have nowhere to go with wearing this killer frock oh William Dorsey Swan gave me an outlet. Thanks, Will. So, yeah. So the balls were obviously secretive because this was like super on the down low because not only are they men dressing up as women, but they're also former slaves. The invites were distributed at places like the local YMCA, like very underground. Swan 
is actually the first recorded arrest in the country for female impersonation. It happened on April 12th, 1888. He was falsely convicted and spent 10 months in jail for, quote, keeping a disorderly house, a.k.a. running a brothel. So he's falsely convicted of running a brothel just because he's a dude in a dress. Oh, I thought you were going to say he was falsely convicted of being a dude in a dress. And I'm like, oh, no, that was that was very. How do you mix that up? If he was a dude in a dress, how can you be falsely convicted of that? <laughs> no, no, but also, that... like, what was the law that made that a crime? But so if it was the brothel part, that makes sense. Well, they said he's running a brothel. And furthermore, he's a dude in a dress. So it's kind of like the Cinderella license that some states have for drivers under 18, where you have to be where they can't pull you over for driving after midnight. But if you are caught driving after midnight, it's an additional penalty. Gotcha. So there needs to be something else that happens. Correct. It's a secondary offense. That was my understanding of how this went down, at least. He's also one of the first requested and denied pardons from President Grover Cleveland after his conviction. And he is the first known American activist working toward LGBTQ plus communities right to gather. So he's the first one. So that's pretty cool. And that was all in the DC area guys. And he was a former slave. So like he's crushing it. Late 1800s to early 1990s. This is the vaudeville and female impersonator era. So, you know, that was kind of the beginning of female impersonation, but then we get really into it. And again, we can't use that term anymore because A, it's inaccurate. B, it's like out of fashion. But during this period, that's what it was. So it's a shift into vaudeville and therefore urban communities instead of like these poor farming communities. The shift was caused by the great migration of African-Americans, the influx of immigrants, like all that stuff is happening during this like 20 year period between like 1880 and the early 1990s or early 1900s. That was a a long period. (laughs) Not the 1990s. The 1900s, not the 1990s. So female impersonators were now attracting like top dollar prices for their performances because they were like an oddity. It's kind of like, you know, circus stuff, like Mm -hmm. the freak show. So some even like the more famous ones pose for cosmetics and corset advertisements. So like these were big celebrities at the time. This shift to a more affluent audience and a more primetime attention meant that acceptable female impersonators were now strictly straight white men because isn't fucking everything. (laughs) If you deviated from the straight white man norm, you're obviously a pervert. Like, that's not allowed. Obviously. Obviously. This mindset led to American cities establishing laws prohibiting cross-dressing. That's also like not cool to say now, but that was in the laws. That's the language that was in the laws. Preventing cross-dressing to punish those associated with the perceived deviant LGBTQ community. So this increases the connection in like the American psyche between cross-dressing and criminality at this point. Mm So here are some major cities with laws against cross-dressing during this era on the books. Memphis. That one wasn't originally 
for LGBTQ plus. That was because during the Civil War, they wanted to keep women from dressing as men to fight. So that's like the anti that's like the anti Mulan movement. Was essentially. that a predominant enough problem that they needed to prohibit it, I guess? I don't know. They perceived it to be, so it's kinda like voter fraud where there's no evidence but everyone's afraid it's happening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's kind of that. Detroit, Columbus, Denver, womp womp, Miami, San Diego, Chicago, Houston, Cincinnati, Oakland until 2010. What? Oh. Truth. And New York State until 2011. Do you think it was maybe just one of those situations where like... There were just like legacy laws that... Yeah, like we just kind of like forgot it. about it, so didn't yeah. bother to change Yeah, it, it just but... never happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So New York State in particular, I, I wanted to figure that out because I'm like, uh, Stonewall? Like, yeah. what the fuck? Not that it's an excuse, but if you just kind of just like no one's enforcing it and we've kind of yeah. moved past it, yeah. but you probably should yeah. still officially take it off the books. Right. So it wasn't officially taken off the books until 2011. It was established in 1845. But don't worry, that one also wasn't originally targeting LGBTQ+. It was originally intended to punish rural farmers who had taken to dressing like Native Americans to fight off tax collectors. So they were like, please don't come collect my taxes. I am an indigenous person. See my teepee and my feather headdress. Is the law broader then? Like instead of just being cross-dressing, it's like like dressing in a way that That presents yourself other than who you are kind of thing? Yeah, it was misrepresenting your identity through clothing. Ah, okay. Yeah, because like you could be a man dressing as a male and mm-hmm. Native American indigenous person, excuse me. And that would not be cross-dressing. So, but I guess if they make it so you can't be anyone right. other than yourself. It was basically a dress code. Yeah. Like, that's essentially what it was. You have to dress as who you are so that it has to match your genitalia, not necessarily your gender identity. It has to match your ethnicity? Herit- heritage, ethnicity. Yeah, that, those are the words I wanted. Okay. Yeah. And then there was one more that I just kind of thought was funny. It's in Louisiana, a place called Del Camber. Sorry, Louisiana. (laughs) It was established in 2007. Like, what? To combat the saggy pant look. (laughs) 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 That just like you can't have your boxers showing over your Yeah, so allow me to read it for you. Any person in any public place or in view of the public to be found in a state of nudity or partial nudity or in dress not becoming to his or her sex or in any indecent exposure of his or her person or undergarments or be guilty of any indecent or law behavior, lewd behavior. I feel like indecent is a vague enough term that. Yeah, you know, like, that's up very, to interpretation. Like, subjective, yeah. Yeah. But they were tired of looking at people's boxers. That was that. (laughs) So that's the age of like cross-dressing laws, which by and large have been disassembled. But, you know, there were a few stragglers, like I mentioned. Early to mid 1900s is the nightclub era. So with an established tie between criminality and the LGBTQ plus community that I mentioned, the drag community had to go underground. This is during like the Prohibition era, which mm-hmm. is 1920 to 1933. So speakeasies were often places where drag queens could go to express themselves. And this also became known as the pansy craze. Like, okay. 
this is also when the LGBTQ plus districts in in like major cities started to develop when like the neighborhood nightclubs grew in popularity. So think the village in Manhattan, Boys Town in Chicago, Castro District in San Fran, like think those kinds of neighborhoods, you know, the gayberhoods as they are referred to. 1950s to 1970s, this era is characterized by like riots and protests. So I decided to highlight a few of them. Some of them you may know, some of them you may not. 1959 was Cooper's Donuts Riot in LA. I haven't Uh, heard of that one, but I like the sound of it. I know, right? (laughs) It's considered to be the first LGBTQ uprising in the States. So there are two cops. They enter Cooper Donuts, which is located between two gay bars. So it's in like the gayborhood, quote unquote. And they ask for the patron's IDs because the laws at the time said that if you weren't presenting as the gender on your ID, you could be arrested and jailed. And that's pretty universal across the country at this point. They come in, they ask for everyone's IDs. They arrest two drag queens, two male sex workers and one gay man. So then people are like, you can't. You can't fucking do that, man. We're done. And they start protesting by throwing coffee, cups, and trash at the cop car until the officers eventually leave without the arrested individual. So they're like, fine, these guys can get out of our car. Like, fuck this. They flee from the coffee and the donuts. Literally. (laughs) So the rioters get empowered by that and they take the rioting to the street, like around the shop and like in the neighborhood. And it's well into the night, but nobody ended up getting arrested that I read. So, you know, the cops kind of gave up. Cool. 1966, Compton Cafeteria Riot in San Francisco. This is a 24-hour diner that was one of the few places in the city where trans women could congregate because of the rampant transphobia and cross-dressing laws. So these trans women, by and large, were working as sex workers. They were considered unsavory throughout the rest of the city. So that was really one of the only places where they could be served. One night, the restaurant started to impose service fees for drag queens to try and deter them from going to the restaurant and scaring off like richer, more attractive clientele. So the drag queens start to pick at the unfair treatment. One trans woman threw coffee in a cop's face again with the coffee when the (laughs) restaurant insult to cops. Yeah, what an insult to coffee. coffee. I'm also wondering, is it a hot coffee that's going to like scald them? Oh, it's definitely a hot coffee. Because that's dangerous then. Well, yeah, they're pissed. One trans woman threw coffee in a cop's face when the restaurant called the cops. So that precipitates some fighting. So the restaurant and the cop car windows are smashed. The neighboring newsstand is burned down. They end up replacing the windows only to have them smashed again in another night of riots. Like this goes on for a couple days. So the fighting was not covered by the press at all. So the exact huh. date is unknown to this day. Oh, wow. Huh. They just have a vague year slash wonder weekend. why they didn't cover it. Yeah, because, you know, it's transphobia. Draw attention to it. Yeah, yeah, it was all trans women. So they didn't want to bring attention to, you know, it's transphobia. It's 1966. 1968, St. Patrick's Day in Los Angeles. Two drag queens named Princess and Duchess, best names. (laughs) 
held a party in Griffith Park to protest the police targeting of LGBTQ individuals. And Griffith Park at that time had a reputation for cops like targeting people there. It was like a cruising spot for LGBTQ plus individuals. So over 200 gay men show up and have this St. Patrick's Day party, like kind of in full view as like a fuck you to the cops. And then 1969 is the year of the Stonewall Riots in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's go over the Stonewall Riots. The Stonewall Inn was purchased by the Genovese. I'm not saying that right, but it's like the American. The, the mob. Yeah, it's the mob. The Genovese uh, crime family in 1966. So this is three years prior. Uh, the inn gets purchased by the mob family who used the cover of gay culture to hide their business dealings because everyone's like, oh, I don't want to go near there. Like the gay people are there. So oh. no one ever investigates the mob. <laughs> that's interesting. That's actually pretty clever. Yeah, that's actually kind of genius. So, you know, good. Good for you, man. Mm-hmm. So what happened is these police officers come in to conduct a raid of the popular bar. The bar is located in Greenwich Village. So usually the bartenders are tipped off that a police raid would happen that night. But this particular one was not reported to them. This is June of 1969, June 29th. So usually the bartenders are tipped off, but they're not about this one. And so they're pissed off because these police officers show up essentially unannounced. Standard procedure is to line up the patrons of the bar. There were 205 patrons that night. Check ID and then send a female cop into the restroom with those presenting as female to check their biological sex and arrest those who are presenting as female but are biologically male. So there's literally a penis check at these things. Yeah. So the patrons that night decided not to show their IDs. They were just like, none of us are going to do it or go to the restroom with the cop. So the violence breaks out. The violence spills out into the streets. So a bunch of bystanders like hear all the like commotion and are like, what the hell? And it's a predominantly gay neighborhood. So they're like, oh, well, we're not going to stand for this. So all of these bystanders start joining in. Garbage cans, bottles, bricks, and actual garbage were thrown at the Stonewall Inn building in protest. The riots went on for two nights, and it's considered a turning point in the fight for LGBTQ rights. So that's the one that everyone hears about. Yeah, the Stonewall riots. But also, in 1976, there's a little one called Invasion of the Pines on Fire Island in New York. It's when this restaurant denied entry to a patron in drag. His name was Terry Warren. Warren retaliated by convincing his friends to dress in drag and sail to Fire Island, like take over the water taxis going to Fire Island during 4th of July weekend, which is obviously a huge traffic weekend going, mm-hmm. going over there. So now it's a yearly tradition because these guys were just like, you know, I'm going to wear a dress on the water taxi. Fuck you. <laughs> so Invasion of the Pines happens every year now. I like it. I know. It's pretty cool. So that was like the rioting age. And then we move into like modern pop culture. So I wanted to go over a few references that you may be familiar with as far as drag queen culture goes. In like films and movies, there's Mrs. Doubtfire, Hairspray, 
Rocky Horror Picture Show, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, Hedvig and the Angry Inch, White Chicks, The Nutty Professor, Kinky Boots, and Rent. In music, there's the song Born This Way by Lady Gaga, as well as the song Drag Queen by The Strokes. And then just the entire career of David Bowie, Freddie Mercury, and Prince. And then in TV, there's Sophia Bursett, played by Laverne Cox on Orange is the New Black. There's Mo, played by Alex Newell on Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. Oh, I love her. I know, right? Haven't seen it yet. Actually, Mo uses male pronouns, but dresses in female clothing, which, you know, is his choice. And then I would be remiss if I did not mention RuPaul's Drag Race, which really brought like drag queen culture to like mainstream media. Yeah, not just like quote unquote cross dressing, but like, you know, drag queen, like the flamboyant lifestyle and yeah, the lifestyle, the, the scene to mainstream definitely usa but even just mainstream media globally so yeah that is drag queen history and i'm gonna sashay away now i really enjoyed this segment a lot i I did too i had a lot of fun researching this one and there were definitely a few things that i was like oh i didn't know like i didn't know about cooper's donuts riot I didn't know about the ball. Like, I didn't know the history behind the balls. I knew that there were drag balls. I just didn't know, like, that whole backstory. Yeah. And I knew that you, like, can inherit a drag name from, like, your drag queen mentor. But I didn't realize that it was so elaborate, like, that it's basically a family tree. You know what I mean? Yeah, I didn't know any of that. I thought you were just, like made up your own identity i mean you can that's you you can do that um if you don't necessarily have a mentor or you know a drag mother per se but yeah there's that whole element and i i never knew any of that so go see a drag show i also really like the timing of this because this episode is the final one of pride month and as you mentioned not that you need to be on like the lgbtq plus spectrum to engaged in the drag culture but um there's definitely overlap there nope uh but there's absolutely overlap and uh you know it's a super important topic the carnegie con so when i say bank heist what comes to mind uh that dane cook sketch about the bank heist. Also, also Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I thought of Batman, uh, Heath Ledger as the Joker. <laughs> the opening scene. But it's like, what does a bank heist involve? Robbing a bank. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the Italian job. I, I think of the Italian job. I like, I like that one. But I'm going to describe what many historians consider to be one of the greatest bank heists like of all time. It's probably not quite how you imagine in terms of the like the spectacle of it. I would call it a con, maybe like not a bank heist, but tomato, tomato. Okay. <laughs> potato, potato. It begins with a woman who... It, it, it feels like that's going to be a distinction that we need to make. <laughs> it begins with a 
woman who's, I was going to say, whose name I wanted to adopt as my own, but now that I have Miss Felicia Goodnight, I don't need this name by any means anymore. Yeah, sorry. You don't need that anymore. (laughs) The main character in my story was born with the name Elizabeth Bigley. And I just love that last name. Bigley. (laughs) For like all the wrong reasons. She was born in 1857 as the fifth of eight children. So too many children. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, oh, my God, that's the year my dad was born. But it was no. 1957. Off by a century. <laughs> Your dad's still not 50. as old as Elizabeth is. <laughs> that's true. That's true. So she's basically like the middle child, but like the middle of eight, which is just like the worst middle child that you could be. Mm-hmm. Ooh. I don't know at what age and how, but she lost hearing in one ear and she also had a lisp. So um, she was kind of like she was quiet. She she didn't speak a lot. And, you know, she would choose her words with care. Like when she did speak, she spoke with purpose, but she was otherwise Hmm. kind of like withdrawn a bit because of those hearing and speech impediments. Oh, she was self-conscious. Sure. I get that. Her classmates found her, quote, peculiar. Poor baby. Her sister Alice said that she would sometimes be found like in a trance as if she had hypnotized herself. And she would come out of these trances, like, disoriented and confused and wouldn't be able to explain, like, her thoughts, like, where her head was at during that time. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And also, sometimes, her sister Alice noticed that she would practice her family members' signatures. Huh. Which is a very interesting hobby for a child. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And And quite the red flag. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. You don't do that? (laughs) Now I'm going to start doing that. (laughs) So some people were put off by her characteristics of like her trances and being withdrawn. But on the other hand, some people kind of like would take pity on her because of her hearing and speech. And so some people would meet her and just kind of have that like, oh, like you, you poor, innocent little thing, you. Mm -hmm. Poor, unfortunate soul. Yeah. Yes. They would underestimate her and she would use that to her advantage, basically. Smart. Clever girl. Yeah. So this comes into play as young as the age of 13. Good for her. She went by names like Betty and Betsy. I don't know which one she preferred. Articles referred her by all sorts of stuff, but we'll say Betty. Okay. She devised her first scheme at the age of 13 where she wrote herself a letter saying that an, a fake uncle had died and left her some money. And so this is like essentially a legal document that's notifying you of an inheritance that you have like pending. And she brought it to a bank and they thought it was authentic and they gave her an advance on the inheritance. What? Yeah. So they provided her real checks and she was able to go about and buy things with these checks because the bank thought that she would eventually come with the actual inheritance money to deposit and they would get their money back that they were giving her. Oh, I see. Okay. Damn. Yeah, so she got away with that for... And she was 13? Yeah, 13. Jesus. Like, I feel like being 13 in, like, the 18, like, late 1800s is basically, like, being, like, 25. Like, <laughs> <laughs> especially being in the middle of eight kids, it's just kind of, like, you go off on your own, like, we can't support everyone. You have to pull your own weight. <laughs> we, we don't have the patience to handle you. You're middle-aged. You. Yeah. <laughs> You're middle-aged. <laughs> So she got away like with it. that for a few months before she was eventually arrested. But because of her age, they were just like, hey, little girl, like, stop it. Don't do that again. 
And she was like, <laughs> okay, yeah, I learned my lesson. Sorry. Think you promise won't do it again. Yeah. She did. Spoilers, she did not. <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> she did apparently lay low for a little while, so um, we don't really know much until she's 22. 13-year-old laying low. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she's on the lamb. <laughs> she's on the lamb. <laughs> Amazing. So at the age of 22, she started a new scheme where she bought herself an expensive letterhead and faked a basically another like notification of inheritance. She used a fake attorney based in Ontario stating that a philanthropist died. So like not even a relative, just like a really generous philanthropist that was giving away money to poor underprivileged children or something like that. What? So this philanthropist died and left her an inheritance of $15,000, which in now money is 350 k oh, That's a good amount of money. Yeah, yeah. that's uh, significant. Yeah. And she's not, this isn't the scam she's most famous for, but it's my absolute favorite. Uh, and here's why. <clears throat> so back in the day, people used calling cards. So these were like precursors to business cards. Sure. That you would just like drop off at people's houses when you were visiting them and they weren't there. So you could just like leave your little card that said like, you know, Miss Elizabeth yeah. Bigley. It would just have like, especially if, if you were a man, it might have your occupation. But if you were a woman, it just might have like the name of your estate or like your residence to just like identify who you are, or where you're from. Mm-hmm. Sure. So she went and got herself her own calling card that were fashioned in, you know, the typical styles of the social elite classes. And hers said, it was printed to read, quote, Miss Bigley, heiress to (laughs) $15,000. Because if you just print it on a card. If it's on a calling card, it must be true. (laughs) It must be true. It reminds me of like Steve Carell as Michael Scott saying like, I declare bankruptcy. (laughs) I declare I'm an heiress. Like if you say it, it is true. Yeah. Like just say it and it's real. Yeah. So she just had it printed on a card, which is like not suspicious. Like, why do you need to go proclaiming that? (laughs) I would feel really, I'd just be like, what the heck? If I were like returning home from my stroll and I had a calling card from a woman who only identified herself as an heiress to a bunch of money. Also, she's like 12. So. Well, no, at this point, she's 22, 22 now. Oh, um, yeah. She's returned from being on the lamp. It's like, but okay, you're an heiress to all this money. Why are you at my house? Yeah. What do you, what, what well, do you so want? This is what she actually used it for. That's what calling cards were classically <laughs> used for. But this is what she actually used it for. So also at the time, businesses essentially did cash back on checks. So, you know, cash back, you can do like oh, on yeah. your debit cards. I use it all the mm-hmm. time to avoid ATM fees. I'll just like buy peanut butter cups for a buck. <laughs> get some cash back and then I walk away with cash and peanut butter cups. It's fantastic. And I don't Mm -hmm. have to pay the like ATM fee to the bank. Look at you. Businesses like retail shops and stuff, they did the same thing for checks. And so she would go to like a fancy place, buy something really expensive and then write a check that exceeded the price and merchants would give her cash back. So she would pay more than she needed to for the item and they would give her cash back for the difference. Right. But of course, like these were, you know, she's not buying peanut butter cups. She's buying like fur coats and jewelry. Sure. And um, so if they ever questioned like, you know, this is a lot of money. What is her check even going to clear? She would just produce her calling card and say like, oh, no, see, 
I'm an heiress to $15,000. It's in writing. Yeah. Therefore, it is true. And it worked every single time. Mm-hmm. Why would anybody Jesus. question, like, why would somebody print this on a card if it weren't true? <laughs> so I don't know exactly how long she got away Amazing. with that for. I don't know a lot about the details of how she was caught for that. Just like one source said that she was eventually arrested and released on insanity. But she like she she didn't actually like face any repercussions for for this scam. I feel like she's clearly not insane. She is super smart. Yeah, yeah. she definitely but, yeah, knows what she's doing. Underestimate like, her because she's a woman. Yep, yep. <laughs> they had it coming. That was still all <laughs> in Ontario, and after she gets stopped with the scheme, she moves to Cleveland, where her sister Alice is. Her sister's gotten married. And so she follows her down there and she stays with them under the condition that like she's only there long enough to find her own like shop girl job or something like that. Mm -hmm. But instead, what she actually does is she takes in an inventory of her sister's entire household, like her furniture, her silverware, her paintings, and arranges for a bank loan using her sister's furnishings as collateral. (laughs) So this is her like third scheme to get money, but this time like using her family. For leverage. This is like that episode of SVU where Amanda Rollins' sister is like, oh, I have to stay with you, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, okay. And then Amanda comes home and like all her shit's gone because her sister took it and like pawned it. Don't know that reference at all. Nor do I. Okay. Well, that's what (laughs) happened. So eventually Alice's husband finds out what she's been up to and kicks her out. Fair. So now she's kind of out on the streets. She's going between boarding houses. And she She's eventually got a lot of money, doesn't she? Can't she afford yeah. somewhere to live? She's an heiress to fifteen dollars. Fifteen thousand dollars. I don't know. Kind of fifteen dollars in the eighteen hundreds is a lot of money. <laughs> That's the kind of heiress I am, you guys. <laughs> but yeah, at first an heiress she, to fifteen dollars. She doesn't really need to worry about money because she she meets a man. You know that solves all your problems. Oh yeah. So she meets a Dr. Wallace Springsteen. The doctor was... Springsteen? Yes. Not Bruce. Oh, boy. (laughs) Oh. I don't think he was born then. It's disappointing. The doctor was immediately captivated by her, and they married before a justice of the peace, so just like a courthouse wedding. But it was, like, not advertised, it's not the word I'm looking for, but, like, posted in the Plain Dealer, like a Cleveland newspaper, just like the notice of their union. Mm Mm-hmm. Which that, unfortunately, caught a lot of people's attention because various merchants around Cleveland were like, hey, I recognize this woman. She like came into our shops and scammed us. So within days of their union, a bunch of people showed up at the doctor's house demanding that they be repaid for Betty's <laughs> debts. The doctor checked into their stories, unfortunately found out that they were true. His wife owed a bunch of people a bunch of money and was just like a crazy scam artist. So he Hmm. did pay off the debts because he he thought that it affected like his credit. So he paid their debts, but then also booted her. And so they were married for a whopping 12 days. Oh, (laughs) ooh, not good. People moved real fast to get their money back. Not great. Not great. But I mean, she did get her debts paid. So yeah. So yeah. So she walks away divorced, but clean slate. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Net gain on this one. You know, but now she does need to start over. 
Sure. So she reinvents herself and now goes by the name Madame Marie Rosa. And she continues floating around between different boarding houses because she's probably like... Is this still in Cleveland? Yeah. She's probably like not paying her rent. So she just like skips out by the time they're ready to start collecting from her and goes to another boarding house or something. Okay. There's now like a spotty patch in her history where I couldn't find a lot of information. She got married at least one more time, maybe twice, but she didn't appear to really be like scamming during that time. So there's not a lot of reliable information on what she was doing for a few years. Um, But she eventually turns up later on under the identity of Madame Lydia DeVere. Okay. So she moves to Toledo, Ohio. And as Madame Lydia DeVere, she takes on the identity of a clairvoyant or like a fortune teller. Mm -hmm. And she finds a man named Joseph Lamb who pays her to be his financial advisor. Like that was the thing people did. If if you really believed in your fortune teller, you trusted them with like your predicting your financial futures. Huh. She would have him cash checks for her because he was like really respected. Um, I don't remember exactly what his profession was, but he was like really respected individual. So he could go cash checks for like a lot of money and the banks wouldn't question him. Mm-hmm. So she would forge promissory notes and have Joseph Lamb cash them. But eventually the banks caught on and arrested both. Betty Bigley, or Lydia DeVere, as she was going by, and mm-hmm. Joseph. But they perceived Joseph to be her victim, which is accurate, really. Yeah, I don't think he I was going to say, it kind of right? sounds like he is. Yeah. yeah, so he was acquitted of all charges, along with other victims. So he was the most prominent victim. She was scamming some other people at the time. But he would later claim that she had hypnotic powers, hmm. which was really popular especially during this time, like, head, like end of 1800s, early 1900s, that, mm-hmm. like... There was some statistic like 8 million people believed in, like, really passionately believed in hypnotism. um, And that, like, you could be hypnotized without your awareness. Like, as opposed to, like, going purposely to be hypnotized. Also, there's Um, an SVU on this. Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) And so hypnotism was used as an explanation for everything. Like, adultery, Mm -hmm. running away with your... Made. I mean, it's a really good out, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. I was hypnotized. Yeah. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't mean to put my penis in and her. And people believed it. They were like, well, then that makes you innocent. I fell on top of her during hypnotism. <laughs> I was sleepwalking. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't think he needed the hypnotism claim based on like but, how you know, she was operating, but he used it. Hurt. Yeah. So he was acquitted. And Betty was convicted of forgery, and she was sentenced to nine and a half years in a state penitentiary. Oh, no. Yeah. No. Even there, she posed as a clairvoyant. And this is kind of, like, weird interesting, because she told the warden that he would lose $5,000 in a business deal, which he did. Ooh. Oh. And also that he would die of cancer, which he did. I mean, uh, were those just really good guesses? Or I like, mean, it's yeah. very likely. I don't know. Like, but. he probably just looked like someone who didn't know how to, you know, save money. And take care of himself or something. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Or like, he was, was smoking or, or something. some yeah. shit like that, you know? Yeah. I just thought that was interesting. It was one of the only instances that are reported where, I mean, like, a lot her, of people died quote, of cancer. Fortune telly, or, quote, fortune telling was supposedly accurate. I mean, if you make enough predictions, one or two, yeah. I mean, cancer, like, cancer is pretty ubiquitous. Everybody's got cancer. (laughs) 
she doesn't have to serve all of her nine and a half years. She gets released around three and a half years. There was like a whole letter writing campaign where she was just like, I am sorry. And all these other people vouch for me. And they were just like, yeah, you're harmless. And so they kind of let her go. Clearly not harmless, but go ahead. She keeps doing it. She doesn't learn her lesson. (laughs) Yeah. Like, all right, brah. (laughs) So then we skip to the time where she's around 40 now. And Mm -hmm. she is presenting herself back in Cleveland as Cassie L. Hoover. So this is one of those weird things where like some sources say that she just kind of turned up and was like, I'm Cassie Hoover. Some sources say that she had like married somebody. Is it on a business card? It doesn't count if it's not on a business (laughs) card. Um, But she may or may not have married a man named Hoover that like left her a widow. It's kind of unclear. But so she, she just turns back up in Cleveland as Cassie Hoover. Okay. She opens a brothel. As and you do. there she meets a doctor. He's wealthy and also sad he's widowed. So oh. he's single. He has nobody to share all of his money with. Oh. And, <laughs> she can help him out with that. Yeah. Yes, I'm sure she does. <laughs> he's from a really prominent family and he's wealthy and, you know, like locally famous. So when he comes in, she knows who he is right away. Okay. And um, so she, like, she knows that he's like recently single and all that kind of stuff. It's a little unclear like what he was doing in the brothel to begin with. Like if he was there as a client or there to like do a house call on one of the women. Okay. House call, quote unquote. Yeah. But she kind of plays this role. Like she meets him and is just like, oh, hi, like I'm Cassie Hoover. I run this boarding house. Like I'm also a single widowed woman. And look how much we have in common. Yeah. And I just I run this establishment to help other women during their time of need because I'm so like passionate. Uh And the doctor, Uh Leroy Chadwick, was like, no, this is a brothel. Like everybody knows this is a brothel. (laughs) You're not fooling anybody. He calls her on her bluff. (laughs) He calls her on her bluff. Like, um, have you seen what you're doing? So she faints. (laughs) Of course she does. Uh huh. And when she, you know, revives, when she comes back, it's a pro move. She is shocked. She claims that she had absolutely no idea what the women in the establishment were up to. Like she thought she was just providing housing. Oh Oh my god. She had no idea that these women were sex workers. So nice. And she begs the doctor to take her from the building. Like I I cannot be associated with this establishment. This is so (laughs) terrifying. Amazing. And he's like, oh my goodness, of course, yes. So he whisks her away, and they get married. Of course they do. (laughs) Why wouldn't they? There's an alternate story where he apparently tells people that he might have gone there thinking it was like a massage parlor and he had rheumatism in his back. Mm. And so Cassie gave him a massage for his rheumatism and, you know, one thing led to another. They fell in love. A massage. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Sure. No mm-hmm. one believes you. But anyways, she moves into his residence on Euclid Ave in Cleveland, which is also known as Millionaire's Row. Oh, I know it. Yeah, it's where like the mm-hmm. really like wealthy aristocratic folks live, like the Rockefellers live there and shit like that. Mm-hmm. I don't know how long their like courtship was for. Their marriage was a surprise to a lot of his friends. Like none of them ever met Cassie until he just like showed up at a party and introduced them, like, this is my wife. And they were like, oh, okay. Nobody knew anything about like her family, where she came from. She just kind of popped up out of nowhere. So it was presumably not a long okay. courtship. There's just like not a lot of information on dates and how long they knew each other. 
So now we're getting to the Carnegie con, though. So while she's married to Leroy Chadwick, she goes on a little just like vacation weekend away to New York City. There she bumps into a man named James Dillon. And by bumps into, I mean, she stalked him. (laughs) 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 Yeah, she doesn't seem to have the chill to Um, just like. (laughs) He was was a lawyer that was also a friend of her Mm -hmm. husband's. So she already knew who he was and knew that he would be in New York at this time and like coordinated her trip to coincide with his. So she like bumps into him at the hotel they both happen to be staying at. And they're like, oh, he's like, yeah, I'm in town for like lawyer business. And she's like, I'm in town for, you know, family business. And she's like, no, I'm here alone. Would you mind escorting me to my father's place? And, you know, ever the gentleman, James Dillon, was like, you know, of course. So he like kills a carriage and she gives him the address and they head off. And James Dillon is shocked to see that the carriage pulls up to a four story mansion belonging to still magnate Andrew Carnegie. I really thought you were going to say, when you said she gives him like whatever, I'm like a blowjob. <laughs> <laughs> like that was my immediate so reaction. Roadhead. A blowy. <laughs> Actually, in this the is 1902. So yeah, uh, an early 1900s blowy. Turn of the century. <laughs> Probably have to get through that like weird long underwear they were wearing or something. I have no idea. <laughs> oh no, thank you. Gotta break through all that. So they get to the mansion Ugh. and. He waits inside the carriage while she goes in. And so now this is all a ruse to give him the impression that she's there to see her father, because that's what she said. What she actually does is she goes in, she like knocks on the door, the butler lets her in, and she asks to see the housekeeper. And she's basically just wasting the housekeeper's time to make it look like she has business to do in the house. Sure. She's just like, just pretend that we're laughing together, that I said something really funny. (laughs) Um, It was a little bit more involved. She told the housekeeper that like she was looking to hire her own maid and the maid had provided them as a reference that she had used to work at the Carnegie household. And so she was asking the housekeeper, like, can you verify this woman's like work history with you? And the woman was like, no, like Mm -hmm. this woman's never worked here before. And Cassie was like, no, no, no. Like she looks like this. She's this old, like you know, these are her credentials. And the housekeeper just like kept swearing, like we've, we've never had this woman work here. And so she managed to kill like half an hour with this ploy. And before she was like, okay, like this must be an understanding. Thank you so much for your time anyways. And so she leaves the house. So James Dillon in the carriage, just like what he sees is Cassie goes into Carnegie's house, is there for half an hour and comes back out. And so she returns to the carriage and she produces like from her bag or her coat, this envelope. And so James Dillon is like, Cassie, like, what is this? And she's like, okay, listen, I am Andrew Carnegie's illegitimate child. And he pays me this hush money. Yeah. Salacious. He has guilt about it and that kind of stuff. So (laughs) he, he gives me money regularly. And I'm also due to inherit like millions of dollars when he dies. So in the envelope are a bunch of promissory notes, indica- like signed by Andrew Carnegie, indicating that like installments that he was paying to her. So she made James Dillon promise, like, you have to keep my secret, knowing that he wouldn't. She was like 
Of she was relying not. on him to return to Cleveland and start spreading this information through the rumor mill. Gotcha. So, yeah, so she returns to Cleveland <laughs> and she starts making visits to banks with the signed promissory notes from Andrew Carnegie to start taking out like really extravagant loans. And nobody questions it because they've heard from a promising source, James Dillon, mm-hmm. that like she it's indisputable. She was seen going into the Carnegie's house and like, you can't argue that. So they have like, they have absolutely no doubts about the validity of the documents. And even if they did, they weren't going to question it. Like who's going to go to Andrew Carnegie and be like, Hey, millionaire stale guy. I know about your bastard child. Like, (laughs) yeah. Like fess up to your illegitimate child. Like nobody was going to do that. So it was kind of just like Cleveland's dirty little secret, like between her and all the banks that just like everybody knew that they had this like millionaire illegitimate child amongst them and they loaned her like boatloads of money so the banks it's entirely fabricated too like that's oh she starts her own that's fucking genius so the banks loan her money and even like the presidents or the owners of the banks make personal loans to her like from their own like private fortunes because they they are so excited to have like the money from Andrew Carnegie because they also are issuing the loans with like illegally high interest payments because she's going to be like a millionaire right so they know that supposedly by these, yeah um but that by making these loans they were going to get like a shit ton of money back from it when she paid it mm-hmm. and so for some banks she took out loans for like almost a million dollars and she also took loans from smaller banks, but never less than $10,000 from a bank. So, like, that was, like, the minimum of a loan that she would take. She also convinced, like, through several sources, she was connected with a banker from Boston named Herbert Newton, who also loaned her m- uh, money from his business account and personal account. But, uh, you know, us Boston folk were smart. And even though he initially fell for her scheme, he was the first person to realize that, like, bitch was not paying her back. So at first he realized, like, he thought that he was the only one giving her loans. And then when he realized that other people were loaning her money, he was like, why does she need, like, why does she need to go to so many different people for so many loans? And that seemed sketchy. And so then he started asking around, looking into it. They found out that, like, the promissory notes were really suspicious. And so he was the first person to file suit against her, realizing that he, she wasn't going to pay him back. So by November 1904, so she's been working on this, like, Carnegie Con for about, like, two years. Mm-hmm. Newton files suit against her. And uh, all the other banks catch on. And in order to prevent her from just, like, running off... They hold all of the promissory notes from her, quote, father, because mm-hmm. then she can't use them to scam other people in the meantime if they're holding on to them. Mm-hmm. For a little while, she fled to New York, hoping to, like, get away. But she was arrested there. She was found with a money belt on her with over $100,000. What? <laughs> and they sent her back to Cleveland. At this point, her husband was fed up, filed for divorce, and fled to Europe to get away from all the drama. <laughs> sure bad when your husband has to flee the country to get away from your shit yeah Yeah, that's not great (laughs) also they're like super wealthy so it's just like i'm just gonna casually go to europe like Mm -hmm. it's nothing and like never come back yeah so cassie denies all charges she denies that she ever claimed a relationship with andrew carnegie even though it's like 
all over. There's a paper trail. <laughs> <laughs> we have and, the receipts. Yeah. Not a great lie. No. <laughs> so after like a year of trial, ah! she was found guilty of conspiracy against the government because one of the largest banks that she like defrauded the most loan money from was a national or like a federally backed bank. So that held like a conspiracy against the government charge Mm. amongst like many other fraudulent charges. So she was found guilty and sentenced to 14 years in the penitentiary. Womp womp. Carnegie himself attended the trial because he wanted to like see this woman that was claiming this to bitch be claiming. Yeah, yeah, his illegitimate child. He also claimed that he hadn't signed a promissory note in 30 years. And he was kind of like, if anybody had come to ask me, I could have like squashed like, this right away. Like if one of you yeah. had said something. <laughs> yeah. Um, but like, like nobody was going to go question him. That would have been yeah, awkward. Of course not. Yeah. Um, also, a bunch of her peers from Millionaire's Row came to the trial, which I just think like must really suck to see like... Ooh. Well, they just want to see her fall on her face. Yeah, yeah. But, like, that's just going to suck. Yeah, that's... Nobody likes that. She tried really hard to fit in with them, and, like, she never could really, like, penetrate their social circle because of her awkward characteristics. I mean, like, I know that she's a liar and she sucks, but, like... That's just going to hurt. Yeah, that's just a bummer. So many of the banks failed because they loaned her more money and credit than, like, they actually had in capital oh shit and mm-hmm. yeah Ooh. so when the news of the fraud broke out like regular bank clients came to withdraw their money because they wanted to like Ooh. get it out before yeah. something happened to it but it was too late and so they would go and find that like their money was gone and the banks had failed entirely so like just local residents also like oberlin university i think had um, did you say oberlin or overland oberlin in ohio oberlin uh-huh yeah and like the ymca like mm-hmm. All of these major institutions were fucked because they had all oh my been like God. using these banks that she was defrauding. It's like an insane amount of collateral damage for this one woman did. I exactly. was gonna say, like yeah. she left this trail of carnage. Yeah, yeah, just like a destructive like wave. Yeah, and that's why she's kind of credited with like the largest bank heist is because of the impact that it had. So the exact Yeah, it's not um, even really a heist. A long con. Yeah. The, uh, the exact crazy. value of this, like, Carnegie con is unknown because um, historians are pretty convinced that a lot of people that she scammed, like, were too embarrassed to even come forward. I get that. Mm. They, they knew that they weren't going to be getting their money. And so, like, why would they identify themselves as being fools? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or possibly, yeah, like, they didn't know great. they were being scammed at the time. But the most commonly cited sum is $633,000 in then money, which is... I was going to say. <laughs> $16.5 million Jesus. in today's money. Jeez. So that's how much I she mean, defrauded from Ohio banks by claiming to be the illegitimate daughter of like a railroad gazillionaire. So I had the right region. It just wasn't... Pittsburgh. It was Cleveland, which is adjacent, equidistant to Erie, Pennsylvania. Yeah. (laughs) So she went to jail. She brought a bunch of trunks with her of like all of like her ten closets worth of wardrobe and (laughs) like photographs and furniture and stuff like that. And the prison warden let her keep it because of her celebrity status. So she kind of had like (laughs) one of those really privileged cells. Um, in the penitentiary but i think about within a year she actually like fell really ill and she ended up dying in prison 
Oh, that makes this less fun. That's the story of Elizabeth Bigley slash Cassie Hoover slash Cassie Chadwick (laughs) and the Carnegie Con. All right. Cockadoodles don't. (laughs) I'm so excited. I say this every time, but I love hearing your teaser again, because by the time we get to it, it's like brand new. Liz has forgotten it. (laughs) John Harvey Kellogg was a doctor. Mm. Oh, is this Kellogg? This is Kellogg's. Hashtag is a doctor. (laughs) Did I tell you that? My roommate is from Michigan and she tried to tell me about the Kellogg's because they're from Michigan. Mm -hmm. And I was like, no, Steph has a segment on this. I cannot hear your your (laughs) background information. I don't want to know yet. I I definitely earmuffed her like (laughs) faux show. So we are going to talk about the Kellogg's Brothers and the invention of cornflakes. Excellent. Cornflakes were invented by John Harvey Kellogg and Will Keith Kellogg in 1895. These brothers were from Battle Creek, Michigan. Like you said, Michigan. That's where my roommate's from. But before we get to them, let's go back just a little bit to the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Always tied to religion. So the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church were Ellen and James White. And they eventually settled down in Michigan, so Battle Creek became kind of a hub for the followers of this religion. And that is why the Kellogg's family moved there. They moved specifically to this region to be near the Whites, because they were followers of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. You know it's Adventist, right? Adventist? Adventist. I thought it was Adventist. She doesn't know. She's not religious. I'm not. Adventist. You're right. That's why I'm helping. It's Adventist. I... It's a cult. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> part, of the, part of the religious teachings were to follow a healthy lifestyle and consume a vegetable and grain-based diet. Sure. Meat was forbidden. Alcohol, coffee, tea, and tobacco were forbidden. Also, like the Mormons, but harder core. Also, greasy fried foods, spicy condiments, and pickled foods. Why? Because these things led to sin. Oh, damn. All the good things. Other things that were prohibited were overeating, drug use, and wearing binding corsets, wigs, or tight dresses. I mean, I don't wear those things, but I don't want to be told not to. Now I want to. All of these things, the corsets and the spicy foods and the pickles, all led to excessive sexual intercourse and masturbation, and therefore they were a gateway to sin. I didn't know there was a direct line to that. Mm-hmm. I mean, wow. nothing gets me going more than overeating spicy food and pickles, but, you know. Yeah. No. Get hot and bothered. Get so hot and bothered by a pickle. <laughs> Tracy hates pickles. I hate them. I hate them so much. I hate the look of them. I hate the <laughs> smell of them. I hate the texture of them. I hate their, how they slip through your fingers. I hate everything oh. about it. I mean, I can't just, like, eat a pickle, but as, like, an Absolutely, accessory to other things, like pickles on a burger, I can no. usually deal with that. Oh, I love pickles. I no. can just eat a or pickle. relish. Nope. Mm. Nope. So, the Whites, the founders of the church, took John Harvey Kellogg kind of under their wing. He became an apprentice to their publishing company, and so he kind of excelled at this, and by the time he was 16, he was editing the church's monthly health magazine. And then hmm. the Whites put him through medical school. 
oh. because they wanted a physician to run their medical and health programs. So they just like sponsored well, this admirable. kid. That they wanted somebody to have credentials. Yeah. I mean, yeah, but once someone pays for you, I mean, that's the whole idea behind lobbyists. Like you then act in their interest. Yeah, this is true. Okay. Anyway, uh, apparently ahead. they gave like zero shits about Will. They just funneled all of their time and resources into John. They're like, this guy is promising. Fuck his younger brother. Cool. We'll, we'll take this one under our wing and put him to medical school. I mean, the oldest kids are worth more anyway. It's fine. False. Um, so John came back from medical school and he opened up the Battle Creek Sanatorium in 1876. This was a very large institute that was a medical center, a hotel, and a spa kind of all in one. But also they, a sanitarium? It was called the sanatorium. Okay. But this, it was a medical center, hotel, and spa. They had things like tennis, swimming, golf, volleyball, tramping, whatever tramping is. I like don't a, know. Something like hiking, maybe. I mean, they kind of advertised it as like a vacation destination as well as like a health institute. That seems weird, like that you go vacation there. Because I know that like my yeah. mom was just telling me after she listened to your segment stuff mm-hmm. on the Dead Ringers that my like great great grandfather or somebody when he had tuberculosis he went to a sanatorium but it was to like keep him isolated from spreading disease amongst the people so like why would you go there as a resort that's i'm i'm very confused by this yeah it was not a standard what what the word sanatorium usually means is not how it was being used here yeah because isn't it like an asylum essentially this was like a all-inclusive hotel it sounds like almost you know like a resort because it had like games you could play and it had like for your mental health spa treatments that you could participate in and they served food so it was like but it also like took care of patients it was very weird conglomerate yeah that's super weird i don't think anything like that exists today or not that i know of anyway i don't know that's yeah i don't trust it yeah. His younger brother, William, he managed like the HR and the business side of things. So this is where they kind of got together and started working together. A mm-hmm. uh, little more about John. He typically wore a white suit, white shoes, and had a white cockatoo sitting on his shoulder. So he's a little bit extra. I'm going <laughs> to rock a doodle doodle to you. Just like you rock a doodle doodle to me. Rock a doodle rock. <laughs> And he was kind of a celebrity doctor. Like, he wrote books, he gave lectures, he edited a magazine. Like, if TV was a thing back then, he would be like a Dr. Oz. Like, he... Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. And he... his Some of his patients were U.S. presidents, Thomas Edison, Amelia Earhart, Sojourner Truth, Henry Ford. So, like, he was the celebrity doctor to the, you know, to the stars and everyone. And a lot of his teachings really came from his religious background rather than his medical education or like, I mean, some combination of the two, but a lot of it was from the Seventh-day Adventist teachings of, you know, the way you're supposed to eat and diet, lifestyle stuff. Mm -hmm. He did practice what he preached because he was a vegetarian and he was celibate during his entire four decade marriage. Nope. Nope. (laughs) Poor girl. I know, Why? Poor Mrs. Dr. Kellogg. <laughs> Why? Why because would you do that? It's a sin. Not with your wife. I don't know. It's still, it's carnal. That's it's... the reason you get married. <laughs> it's really not a good way to. Why get married? Further, yeah. yeah. No. <laughs> Why do that if like, you're at not. At that point, what is it for at all? Agreed. Tax breaks? You're not having kids. Oh I my don't... God, I don't understand. 
I mean, you could still want a life partner even if you're not sexual. I mean, That's asexual true. people That's still have partners, true. you know? Sure. of it. Do we know that he was asexual? I, or was he just suppressing aggressively? It Unclear. feels like <laughs> suppression and less like asexuality. Unclear. Okay, great. It seems to me like a poor way to let your religion live on if you're not going to have children to teach it to. I, I mean, if, if all the Seventh-day Adventists don't have sex, they're going to die out real fast. Yeah, I thought the point was to make it's more... It's not a very sustainable faith. <laughs> I thought you were supposed to make more Seventh-day Adventists. Apparently not. I'm so confused. Everything I know about religion. <laughs> Turned upside down. Ugh. So John Kellogg was very interested in digestive health, and it was kind of a hot topic of the day. In 1958, Walt Whitman had said that indigestion was, quote, the great American evil. And the most common medical complaint at the time was dyspepsia, which was a kind of catch-all phrase that they used to include constipation, diarrhea, heartburn, upset stomach, and flatulence. Pretty much any kind of that digestive like, what's issue. What's that commercial for? Is it like for Pepto-Bismol? Pepto okay. Nausea, heartburn, indigestion, <laughs> indigestion upset yes. stomach, diarrhea. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Breakfast was of particular interest to John. Because at the time, breakfast consisted of a lot of starchy foods like potatoes, fried bacon and ham, cocoa, tea, coffee, heavy cream, whole milk. Sometimes people would serve things like rice that was doused with syrup and milk and sugar, mm. pastries, pancake, bread, like all kinds of stuff that is just heavy I'm foods. I'm on board for this. Yeah, it's all just... Yeah, I'm on board. I mean, it sounds delicious, but also sounds like food coma inducing. Oh, 100%. That's Start your I day like with it. a food coma. Well, it's the most important meal of the day. That's what mm -hmm. I've heard. So he thought that a pre-cooked slash essentially pre-digested grain would be healthier no. and better like for your digestion. Term, pre -digested. Yeah. <laughs> All the work is done for you. I'm just picturing the birds that are eating their food and then like regurgitating back. Yeah. Oh, he just wanted to baby it. bird. He wanted to baby bird grains into your mouth. Doesn't like Alicia Silverstone do that? Or Alicia Ugh. Silverstein? What's her name? I don't know. Alicia Silverstone? No human yeah. should be doing that. There's that's some disgusting. celebrity that's known to do that. Gross. So he started cooking dough at extremely high temperatures, which would break down the starch into simple sugars, which he thought was easier to digest. He experimented with this formula for a while, and cornflakes were born. Gross. It was initially meant to be a food for, quote, invalids with bad stomachs. <laughs> Amazing. Continue. <laughs> it's a very specific clientele. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. Fantastic. I mean, he served it at his resort a lot, you know, these pre-digested grains. It was a horrific-sounding resort. Yes, his health resort. Reportedly, they were so tough that people were cracking their teeth on them. Ugh. Like initially, I think he served as more like a bread or a biscuit, and then they broke it down into the flakes because it was too tough for people to break up with their teeth. And then is that why we started teeth. adding milk to it? Uh, maybe. I'm not sure. To make it Ooh, that's not smart. so hard. Which like if you're breaking people's teeth, teeth are part of the digestive system. So I feel like that's kind of <laughs> counterintuitive to what you're doing. You need your teeth if you're all worried about digestion. Also, the, the original cornflakes tasted terrible because there was no sugar, no added flavors. They were just like bland and tough and disgusting, but they were healthy. So he called his overall lifestyle, this like healthy living lifestyle, quote, biological living. 
that isn't is living not biological what does that mean (laughs) i mean excellent point you're you're excessively biological in your living when you live this lifestyle okay it kind of sounds like a paleo type thing that he's describing where you're like returning to nature you're not allowed to have joy (laughs) no joy no, no flavor, joy. no spice, no salt, no sugar, no sex. <laughs> so it's kind of like a returning to nature kind of uh, mentality. So it's kind of like paleo in that way. You know, it's natural sex reproduction. Truth. Tis indeed. He also promoted more exercise, more bathing, massage therapy and drinking lots of water, which are overall like good ideas. But the diet stuff is kind of excessive. He also studied gorillas in a zoo once, and he noticed that they shit four to five times a day. So he thought that humans are supposed to shit four to five times a day. We are not the same. (laughs) That's not the same. That's really interesting, though. So he had that, like, he was recognizing the sort of, like, evolutionary connection. I guess so, yeah. That's, I think that's Which kind of is counter to his, like, religious beliefs, right? Yeah. I don't like this. I don't know. But as you will see uh, shortly, he kind of became obsessed with poop. Like, awesome. getting having a good BM was real important to him. This guy just sounds like a lot of fun at parties is what he sounds like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's the life of the party. Doesn't drink caffeine or alcohol. He's got this big cockatoo on his shoulder and he's all about poop. Talks about poop. Yep. Actually, poop. I think a guy with a cockatoo on his shoulder would be really would be interesting at a party until you actually talk to him until you talk to him and he's like do you know we're supposed to have five bowel movements a day how often do you shit tell me about your bowel movements and consistency of your output and he generally thought that poor diet could lead to sin this is a quote from him Uh, highly seasoned meats stimulating sauces and dainty tidbits and endless variety irritate the nerves and react upon the sexual organs um okay. okay. He pretty much he wrote about the dangers of like sex and masturbation as much as he wrote about things like diet and exercise. Like he very much thought that This guy needs a new hobby. Sex was a sin. <laughs> well, his hobby is poop. <laughs> I don't like it. <laughs> I'm not a fan. Listen, if you're not having orgasms, maybe the BM is the highlight of your day. Like that's Do you think that he was just like figuring out where his prostate is? I was just about to say, like, does he get some sort of stimulation from the bowel movement? I mean, that I could understand. Maybe. Here's the fun stuff. We're going to get into his health remedies and his inventions. Yes. So let's talk first about the chewing song. So at his sanatorium, so excited, he would lead diners in like a rendition of this song in order to advocate that they chew their food at least 40 times before swallowing because this is important for digestion. This feels like camp songs. If you ever actually like sit there and chew your food for 40, like 40 times, it's like, that's a lot. I would have a real chiseled jawline. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's really like unnecessary. Especially if you're eating cornflakes and cracking your teeth, like... (laughs) I am I the fastest the eater of all of us, and there is absolutely no way. Tracy takes two chews. Yeah, two chews. <laughs> okay, so maybe we need like... I probably average like five. I don't know. There's a happy medium. Somewhere between Tracy and Dr. Kellogg yes. is where you should be. <laughs> 
some of the lyrics of the song. I don't have like a a beat to this, but the lyrics are choo choo choo. That is the thing to do. Nope. Nope. You'll be like singing this while everyone's eating at the dining hall. Is that the whole song? (laughs) That's a lyric from the song. Oh. Oh, okay. He also invented electric light baths. So he thought that light was kind of an essential, uh, like a cure-all. So treating people with light therapy, you could use that for diabetes, syphilis, gangrene, writer's block, and insomnia, which to me is really counterintuitive because if you can't sleep, you don't want lights blasting in your face. You don't don't want light light in your face. But I think maybe just like the longer term effects, like having natural sunlight is definitely very good and healthy for you, but like you don't need to be in it all the time. It also helps with seasonal th- affective disorder. Yeah. And coronavirus. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. That's what Trump tells me. Paired with heat, especially. But we're not talking about natural sunlight right now. He made these wooden boxes lined with light bulbs that you would just either sit or lie in to get your light therapy. I'm sorry, did he make a tanning booth? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that doesn't sound right. He made right. a tanning booth. Essentially. But I don't think you tan from it. You just... Sat in the light. Yeah, I don't. I, I don't think it gave Fast you any. in the glow. Yeah. Uh, he had this other thing called sinusoidal current. He essentially like MacGyvered together parts of a telephone. Like he dissected a telephone, MacGyvered together the parts of it, and this device that he created would deliver like these small, painless electric shocks to patients. And he thought uh-huh. that this was a way of treating lead poisoning, tuberculosis, and obesity. Also. It could treat vision problems when applied directly to the eyeballs. Nope. <laughs> I'm sorry. How did you apply this to the eyeballs? Nope. You electrically you just shocked your eyeballs to help your vision. Nope. Yep. That makes it better. Mm-hmm. Strong pass. He had the continuous tub bath, which is essentially a regular bath that you could sit in for hours to months. What? Who sat in it for months? Was that just theoretical or did people do it? I don't know if anyone actually did sit in it for months. I guess the, the, my, the way, I guess there must be some kind of like mechanism that keeps it warm and clean, which is why you're able to stay in it for such long periods of time. And people were allowed to like get out to use the bathroom. Is it just like a continuous flow? Like, I think so. It was, I couldn't find much more on it except for that. I'm unhappy with this. These baths could treat skin disorders, which I mean, if you're sitting in this bathtub for months and your skin falls off, you have no skin, therefore no skin Ooh. disorder. <laughs> Chronic diarrhea. <I'm- laughs> okay. It also treat delirium, hysteria, and mania. But I feel like if I were to sit in a bath for months on end, I would get delirious, hysterical, and manic. Yes. <laughs> yes. Like, what is happening? No. <laughs> <laughs> he also believed in powerful enemas. So <laughs> yep. he advocated that people would regularly use enemas to clean out their bowels because, again, he's all sure. about the poop. Normally, I'm an all enema, about that poop. About that, about poop. that poop. Go Gross. shitting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I hate it. Normally, an enema was like one to two pints of liquid, but he created a machine. That would power wash you out, essentially, with 15 <laughs> quarts. Oh. Quarts? Per minute. No! <laughs> no! Ow. Oh, that's horrific. He also adv- advocated for yogurt enemas. I'm not sure the utilization of that. Maybe about yogurt? the. 
has healthy cultures in it, maybe. I don't know. You don't need that. Well, yeah, yogurt's really good for you, but you just like you eat it. You don't <laughs> yeah, it through your mouth. You don't no, need you just to put it the other way. Yeah. It, it works fine eating it. You don't need <laughs> yes. to squirt it up your rear end. Oh, I don't know. Why? No. I don't understand how these like enemas fit into like the returning to nature idea because I don't think there's anything natural about shooting 15 quarts per minute of liquid into your asshole. <laughs> but I don't. Just like, just like our ancestors. Just like the cavemen used to do. <laughs> yep. And he created the vibrating chair. Ooh. It was essentially just a plain wooden chair that like shook 60 times per second. And you would sit in this chair, which sounds extremely painful to me because it's not like a comfy chair. This is not like oh. a lazy boy. It's just like a wooden chair that just like shakes you around. I was thinking like something kind of erotic. Like nope. Mm-mm. A nice cushiony nope. leather chair with a vibrating feature. You'd be wrong. Nope. No, he doesn't want you to enjoy this, I don't think. You don't want to be <laughs> stimulated. We don't have enjoyment. Bowels. He only wants to stimulate your bowels. He's, sh- he's trying to shake the shit out of you. <laughs> <laughs> Literal shit. Yes. He also came up with other machines that would beat and slap patients to stimulate circulation. Like the flagellants. No. I, I don't know. No. He had cures for masturbation. Of course he did. He thought that masturbation led to poor digestion, memory loss, problems with your vision, heart disease, epilepsy, insanity. Also, again, it's a sin, so you shouldn't do it. So he had suggested multiple techniques to break young boys of this habit. Get ready to cringe. Oh. This one's not as cringeworthy. You could tie their hands together so they couldn't touch themselves. Sure. I mean tie their hands together. I feel like if my hands were tied, I could still absolutely masturbate. Maybe behind your back or something. I don't okay. know. Or maybe they like bound your fingers so you couldn't really diddle yourself. Grip. Yeah. <laughs> mm. They advocated for bandaging the penis or putting a little cage over the penis. So you restrict <laughs> it's like a chastity belt. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Penis. A penis chastity belt. That's what we're talking about right now. Yes. As a last-ditch okay. effort, you could circumcise the boy. What? Without using anesthesia. Nope. So he'd have like this visceral reaction to his penis being touched essentially afterwards because he would remember the pain oh. of his circumcision. Yeah, it sounds pretty cruel. Uh, th- so you're, asso- you're associating pain with it, which yeah. is why. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's not very nice. He had a few tips for the, the girls too. Oh, of course he did. These are horrific. You could apply pure carbolic acid to the clitoris. Nope. No thanks. Which is a, when applied to skin or mucous membranes, is corrosive. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't need to know. Or you could surgically remove the clitoris if you could not stop her otherwise from diddling herself. Genital mutilation of either genders is just disgusting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, please don't. Yeah, he was kind of advocating for that. He was on board with that. Diddling yourself, yeah. In... 1906, Will Kellogg got sick of John's shit, no pun intended. Walls. <laughs> and he left. He wanted to grow the cereal business. He thought that there was like profits to be had there to turn he's this into wrong. a business. He's, yeah, he's not. But John was holding him back. John didn't really care about making money. He cared about like reforming people's lifestyles and their diets. And he would, even in some of his lectures, he would advocate for people to go home and like make their own cereal. Which is obviously like not what you want people to do if you want them to buy your cereal. 
So Will thought that John was kind of a tyrant and he was like humiliating Will and stepping all over him. Reportedly, Will once was made to take dictation from John while John was sitting on the toilet. (laughs) Oh, God. So he was kind of just like this tyrannical ruler of the two brothers. Sure. Will was like, you're extra, you're crazy, I'm over it. So he left. Yeah, good for him. John did put a patent on his on the cereal because even though he didn't really care about the money, but other cereal companies started springing up all over the area because they were kind of glomming onto this idea of this convenient breakfast food. One person was a former patient of his, C.W. Post, who created grape nuts. Yeah. He was a patient. He couldn't afford the treatment at the sanatorium, so he worked in the kitchen there, and he got to see firsthand how the cereal was made. So then later he went on to create his own cereal and became very wealthy from it. I think I read somewhere that in today's money, he, he was worth like $800 million when he died or something. Ooh. Yeah. Ridiculous. Will started his own company that would later become the Kellogg Cereal Company. And he made cereal more palatable by adding sugar and salt. John yes. became resentful of Will's success and <laughs> later sued him over the family name, like the use of the family name for the company. But Will ultimately won that battle, obviously, because Kellogg still exists today. Right. All of these other companies that were springing up were like adding sugar and flavorful things to it, advertised it more as a convenience food rather than a health food. They started adding cartoon character mascots. So like Kellogg chose the rooster because there was a Welsh word for rooster that sounded similar to the name Kellogg. I'm not going to even try to pronounce it. But, <laughs> okay. So that's how he chose the rooster to be the <laughs> Give it your best try. It. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> All these companies started putting tons of money into their advertisement, post-advertised grape nuts as a cure for everything from rickets to malaria. Oh. Apparently. Nowadays, nutritionists have you know, realized that eating breakfast cereals actually are not that good for you, contrary mm-hmm. to what Kellogg believed, because if you eat something that's you know, simple sugars like that, you get this initial sugar rush, followed by a surge of insulin, and then followed by a crash where you lose energy and feel hungry again earlier than you would have otherwise if you ate something more satiating, because mm-hmm. it doesn't keep you full longer if it's that you know, simple to break down. High-fiber foods are... Take that take longer for the body to digest to keep you fuller longer and are generally healthier for you. So his ideas were wrong. Okay. So a lot of people have heard that cornflakes were created as a food to prevent masturbation. It's not entirely true. Like he never advertised cornflakes as a way to prevent masturbation. But it came from like a really long right. process that just it's eventually led exactly. There. Like it came from his belief in well, he believed that a bland diet would stop sexual urges and he believed in this healthy lifestyle and he was all you know against sex and masturbation because of his religion but i feel like mostly he was just obsessed with having a good poo like that's where it really came from <laughs> yeah just that really feels like poo. the the he more did not like to be backed up did not no. look constipation's uncomfortable i get it i mm-hmm. mean like i don't live my life surrounding it but i'm i enjoy having a good poo i <laughs> Tracy's do bathroom is really set up for you to have a good poo she's got the little she's got the little stool. stool thingy um what is that i have the, the poo the potty the squatty, the squatty potty, potty you've got and the, the poo yep mm-hmm. Tracy's bathroom like. is set up for a good poo yeah because i don't want to smell your poo i want to like i want to ex- i want to power poo and then get out of there you know <laughs> um but all this being said, Kellogg did live to the ripe old age of 91, which was pretty old for her that day. Yeah. So maybe he did know a thing or two about healthy living. 
I don't know. I mean, okay, but... And that's my segment. Go have a good poo. Well, good for him, but you don't need to, like, put that on other people. (laughs) Yeah, calm down, brah. This is Frida Cut-A-Bitch telling you that you can listen to Harpy Hour on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. Wherever you listen, please rate us and leave a positive review. Keep your complaints to yourself. We do not care. And this is Miss Felicia Goodnight. Letting you know that you can contact us at harpyhourpodcast at gmail.com and follow us, like us, all that kind of good stuff on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Harpy Hour Pod. And this is Dame Do you Mimi know your Kanye. Name? Yes. Yeah, this feels like <laughs> I had to think this feels like when I froze during counting to four. <laughs> <laughs> this is Dame Mimi Kanye. I almost said yes. Conway. That's why I had to pause. Nope, wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Reminding you that we are also on Patreon. So if you head on over to Patreon, donate to us. You can get goodies like stickers and extra content. If you donate enough to us, you can listen to our AMAs, which we have up and running now. And uh, you can even suggest topics to us and which harpy you want to cover that topic. So head on over there. Take a look what we got going on. Donate to us to help keep us on the air. Por favor and grassy ass. Thanks for listening. Okay, Okay, bye. bye. Perfect.